Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 51, 144,000. In this episode, I continue with part two of my interview with Mike Velker on Jehovah's Witnesses and their two-class theology. I'm going to skip any promo material, just like I always do in my second of two-parters. But just to catch you up, uh, in the first half of the interview, we talked to Mike about why it is that this particular Jehovah's Witness doctrine is so important. Um, we talked about the biblical position that all believers who are born again in Christ uh, will rise from their graves um, when Jesus returns to live forever in glorified resurrection bodies on earth. We talked about how interesting it is that uh, so many apologists to Jehovah's Witnesses disagree with that view, um, whereas in reality, this is that the issue of the new earth and, and a physical resurrection is exactly where it is that Jehovah's Witnesses and Christians agree. But then we went on to, to explain where it is that we disagree. Mike explained to us that Jehovah's Witnesses believe that there is a special group of 144,000 anointed Christians uh, called the anointed class or the little flock. Um, and that these are going to rule in heaven with Christ, whereas the rest of believers without Christ physically present with them are going to be uh, alive physically on earth. Mike explained that Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that the rest of the uh, Christians besides 144,000 are born again. That's something that only describes the uh, 144,000. Um, they also, uh, Christians are not part of the kingdom of God apart from those 144,000. Uh, only the 144,000 are the bride of Christ. Only the 144,000 are adopted as sons of God. Only the 144,000 partake of the Lord's Supper. And only those 144,000 can uh, be appointed to the governing body. Um, and then we talked about what Mike thinks might be some of the emotional and psychological impacts of this doctrine on your average, ordinary, uh, non-anointed Jehovah's Witness. And it was at that point that we uh, shifted gears, and that's where we're going to pick up right now. All right, well, let's shift gears um, and, and start looking at the scripture more closely. And, and now that we've got a pretty good picture of what it is that Jehovah's Witnesses believe about these two classes, before we look at some proof texts that they would raise in support for their position, could you give us some biblical reasons to reject their view in favor of the Christian position? What passages might you point to? Uh, what biblical case might you provide in support of our belief that all genuine believers are born again, adopted into the family of God, and that all of us will spend eternity in glorified, resurrected bodies with Christ in the new earth? Well, what you could actually do, Chris, is any text that they use to support um, their doctrine of the, the two classes, you can actually use just about every single one of those texts and, and show contextually that it goes against uh, their belief. But uh, just to name a few of my favorite ones, and these are some that you could uh, you or any of your listeners cause you could use at the door with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, one of my favorites is Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 31 through 34. 
And this is where uh, it says the Son of Man comes in his glory. And this is where he's separating the sheep from the goats. And um, you can ask a Jehovah's Witness, um, who are the sheep and who are the goats? And they'll have to say that the sheep are Christians and the goats are non-Christians. Mm. And you can question them very carefully and say, okay, so is there any other divisions here? You're either a sheep or a goat, right? And they'll say, yes. So once you get a Jehovah's Witness to admit that, uh, you can continue on to the verse, and you can ask them to read the rest. And, it, and Jesus will say, Come to you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Uh-huh. And you can ask them, Who are those who will inherit the kingdom? Well, Jesus just started, he was just talking about the sheep, and the Jehovah's Witness just admitted that all Christians are the sheep. And so they'll have to admit that all Christians will inherit the kingdom. But what I mentioned earlier in the interview, Chris, is that Jehovah's Witnesses limit the kingdom of God strictly to God's government in heaven. So you can ask the Jehovah's Witness, are you going to inherit God's government in heaven? Well, of course, they're going to say no, because only the anointed uh, will inherit the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 25, I think, is a very powerful um, and clear verse, uh, which just utterly refutes uh, their two-class theology, because this has two classes, but <laughs> it's two classes of sheep and goats. So yes. you're either you're either a sheep or a goat. Um, another one uh, that's that I never hear used uh, by um, Christian apologists to Jehovah's Witnesses is a uh, Romans chapter four verse thirteen, and uh, this is where it says that Abraham would be heir of the world, but it's not just Abraham who's going to be an heir of the world, it's his descendant or his seed. Uh-huh. But the interesting thing about Jehovah's Witnesses is they believe that the seed of Abraham are the anointed class. Hmm. But what this verse says is that Abraham and his descendants would be heirs of the world. And so, you know, if you're an heir of the world, uh, where does that place you? Well, the Jehovah's Witness can say it places you in heaven, but you can ask them, well, so is Abraham going to be in heaven? And Chris, just to explain this uh, real quick, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe that any of the Old Testament saints are going to be in heaven. Wow. Uh, they're all going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the rest. They're all going to be on a paradise earth. And so Abraham's going to be an heir of the world, and his seeds are going to be an heir of the world. They have the same promise. This isn't talking about uh, two separate hopes, one of a heavenly hope, one of an earthly hope. There's not there's not a division here. But just to press it even further, you can go to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, um, and you can ask them, um, what makes you one of Abraham's descendants? Well, it says, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So you have every indication from Romans chapter 4, 13 and Galatians 29 that all Christians are going to be heirs with Christ, but not just heirs with Christ, but heirs of the world with Christ. Right. Well, those are good. Uh, I'm curious, just as a side note, I didn't send this to you in advance, but what, you know, I, I know that, um, 
and we're not going to get into this in this interview, but I know that they're going to point to the uh, spiritual body, uh, to use the phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15, as evidence that, uh, that that applies to the anointed class. But the thing is, is that that very passage says that the physical body that is planted or that is sown into the ground is the one that is raised up out of it. And so it actually teaches a physical resurrection rather than a non-physical one. Do you think that there's a, an argument that could be made from that passage that you would find persuasive, or should we maybe steer, steer clear from that one? No, I think that's actually a great passage, and that's one that Jehovah's Witnesses will will certainly uh, bring up if you get get into them with it. Um, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I would take a Jehovah's Witness straight to verse 50, because this is one they're going to use a lot. It says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and that's usually as far as they'll go if they're quoting that to you. Now, we just read Matthew chapter 25, and it said that the sheep inherit the kingdom of God. All right, so what you can do is first ask them in, uh, to read 1 Corinthians 15, if they haven't already quoted it already, which they'll probably bring it at first. But you can ask them, um, who inherits the kingdom of God, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15? Well, they'll say uh, the anointed class. They're the only ones who inherit the kingdom of God because... Flesh and blood can't inherit that. That's referring to physical bodies. The anointed class are going to be resurrected spiritually, and so that's why they can inherit it. Well, once you get them to admit that, they've already shot themselves in the foot because you can go to Matthew 25 and ask them, who inherits the kingdom mm-hmm. according to Matthew 25, 34? Well, that's the sheep. That's all Christians. That's including right. them. So I wouldn't recommend getting into what flesh and blood means in 1 Corinthians 15:50. I would let them figure it out because sure. the, the watchtowers interpreted both of those verses in two different ways. But I think the rest of the verse tells us what it means. Perishable does not inherit the imperishable. So right. this whole going uh, inheriting the kingdom of God, this is just saying that perishable bodies uh, can't inherit the kingdom of God because we have to have a new body. We have to put on... Uh, the imperishable. And so once we get that new body, then we'll be able to inherit the kingdom of God in its fullness. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I like the correlation between Matthew 25 and 1 Corinthians 15 there. And I'm just curious, in light of that dilemma that they face, have you ever gotten a Jehovah's Witness to say that, okay, maybe I'm a goat? <laughs> oh, no, no, they haven't, go, they haven't gone that far. They actually do have a response, uh, to Matthew chapter 25. Uh, if you, if you, if you ask them this question, they'll most likely say, okay, I'll get back with you on that. Uh, what they'll come back is a rehearsed answer from the Watchtower Society, um, where Jesus later on goes, um, in to describe his brothers. Um, and, uh, so what they'll say is that the brothers are, uh, the the anointed class that Jesus is talking about there, Matthew twenty five. So you actually have you have um, you have sheep, and then you have brothers, and you have the goats. But uh, actually, that doesn't really work contextually yeah. because Jesus separates all mankind to his left and to his right, or either sheep or, or goat. Who are the brothers? Well, the brothers uh, must be sheep, right. <laughs> obviously. So, so that's kind of a really, um, uh, in my opinion, a lame response. But the way Jehovah's Witness will see it is, as long as it's a response, then it's sufficient. Sure. So you just got to hope and pray that they'll see that as a shallow response, and they may very well see it as that. That, and you just have to allow the Holy Spirit to, to lead them from there. 
Yeah, there you go. Well, I think those are some really good arguments. Uh, but, of course, Jehovah's Witnesses do have their proof texts that they point to in making their case. So let's look at some of those. And obviously we could spend hours on these uh, and, and others, but we're just going to limit it to a few here. And the first set of passages I want to look at are the ones that talk about the 144,000. So let's begin with Revelation 14.1, um, since a few Watchtower publications that I've seen point to it. Um, as you know, that passage talks about 144,000 who have Christ's name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads, and that only these 144,000 could learn a heavenly song of sorts. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, I've noticed, are, are quick to point out that these are said to have been purchased from the earth. What's more, in Revelation chapter 7, these 144,000 are contrasted with a great multitude which no one could count, clothed with white robes. So don't these passages seem to support the Jehovah's Witness position that one small group of 144,000 purchased from the earth will rule in heaven over the great multitude which no one could count that remains on earth? Well, let's first start with uh, Revelation chapter 14. And uh, what we'll notice in verse 1 is that John is seeing something. He looked and he saw the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, which, by the way, Mount Zion, if you look in the... Uh, the Old Testament, um, there's there's many, many references that show Mount Zion as being actually on earth. And so that's one point um, I would I would emphasize with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 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 aside from that, uh, this is something that John is seeing. And so you want to establish that very clearly with the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's seeing something. He's seeing uh, the Lamb on Mount Zion. He's seeing them, him with 144,000. But then in verse 2, it says he heard a voice from heaven. And so you have a distinction here. You have something he sees, and then he has something he heard. Hmm. Now, what he heard is from heaven. And so um, that the only way I can reconcile this is to see that what John is actually seeing in verse 1 is an earthly scene. And uh, in verse 2, he's hearing something from heaven. After all, why does it say that he saw in heaven um you know, and then he goes on to describe. He's just describing what he hears, not what he sees in verse 2. So I think that actually Revelation uh, chapter 14 uh, fits much better with uh, uh, the idea that this the, these uh, 144,000 are actually on earth. Now, as far as the being purchased from the earth, um, I think the Jehovah's Witnesses are reading um, into that uh, way too much uh, that's, that's not really there. Um, because you're just being purchased from where you're located. Uh, that doesn't mean right. that you're exiting or it doesn't say you're resurrected from the earth. It just says you're purchased from the earth. I mean, what else could it possibly say? Because uh, that's just where they're located when they're purchased. Now, um, when we go back to Revelation uh, chapter 7, uh, Chris, um, what you'll notice is that in verses 1 through 8, um, you'll notice this is what uh, John heard. He heard that there's a number, and I'm reading from verse 4, that there's 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then when you get to verse 9, you have what John saw. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count. So I think that Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, is describing what John heard. And uh, chapter 7, verses 9 and following, is describing what he's seeing. So I think it's possible that he's actually hearing about and seeing uh, the same group. And uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses will be very insistent that that group of 144,000 is a literal group of 
of, of people, but uh, I don't think that's necessary, especially since you're dealing with a very symbolic book. Sure. Um, and so I think you can make a really good case by doing cross-references that it's possible that 144,000 could just be referencing um, perfection, uh, not necessarily a literal uh, number. And there's actually some really good arguments that you can go to elsewhere to show that um, there's no way possible that if the Jehovah's Witnesses are going to be consistent, that their anointed class is actually uh, a literal group of 144,000. Right. And, you know, as you and I talked about on the phone, there is another possibility, which is the dispensational view. Now, as as you probably know, I don't hold the dispensational view when it comes to eschatology, but I do actually take the dispensational view of the difference between what I do see as two groups here. But the important thing to note is that even from that view, these are not describing two classes of people, neither is it describing one group of people in heaven and another on earth. What it's describing is one subset of all people on earth um, that is uh, ex- that is um, that has a particular purpose or that is uh, uh, that is peculiar amongst the rest of Christians on earth. And you know, I would have my arguments to point to that. Not the least of which is that Paul here uh, distinguishes, or sorry, John dis- distinguishes between the one group as being from every tribe of Israel, whereas the other group is from every nation and all tribes. But that's a whole other debate. I just wanted to point out that whereas you know, yours, yours is the more covenantal view, um, and and Caesar's is the same group, but one, but in one case heard about and the other case seen but there's another view that dispensationalists and i hold which is that they are two two groups of people but that they're not two classes and they're not in two different places yeah chris i think that's a really good point to bring up because uh christians are are certainly going to differ in that area and and that's that's not a problem i think we all christians can um disagree charitably on on this issue so uh, yeah so whatever side that you're that you're on on this issue i think you can make a very good case um, that uh, the two-class uh, theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses is utterly unfounded. And, and most books uh, written on the Jehovah's Witnesses or how to witness to them will be from more of a dispensationalist viewpoint. So I certainly uh, have sympathy towards that view. Sure. Well, now, in a post at your blog, you pointed out a seeming inconsistency in the Watchtower's teaching that the anointed class are limited to 144,000, given what's said in Hosea. Can you explain that inconsistency for us? Sure, Chris. And this is one area where... Um, if the Jehovah's Witnesses are consistent, uh, they'll have to agree that there's no way the 144,000 can be um, a literal number. If you go to Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, it says that the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, I will say to them, you are the sons of the living God. Uh, now, the Watchtower will admit that this is referring to the anointed class, but uh, there's a problem here. They're saying the anointed class is numbered, and it's a very specific number, 144,000. But <laughs> Jose is saying this is a group that cannot be measured or numbered. So it's uh, on the one hand, you're saying they can be numbered. On another hand, you're saying they can't be numbered. Which is it? And there's another verse that says something very similar uh, that's, that's maybe even more clear than this, and it's in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 27. And this is a prophecy um, where Paul's interpreting the prophecy from Isaiah. And it says in verse 27 of Galatians chapter 4, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Now, the um, the watchtower is going to admit 
that the barren woman is representing the new covenant or the anointed class, but the um, the one who has a husband, that's referring to old covenant Jews. Now, the problem is this verse is saying in Watchtower language that the anointed class is more numerous than <laughs> old covenant Israel. Now, I think anyone with common sense would uh, agree that old covenant Israel had more than 144,000 <laughs> people in it. <laughs> yeah. So this is a very powerful verse because using their standards, you can turn it against them. You know, it's funny. I, I think that there was over 10 times that many people that came out of Egypt alone. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You can find specific um, numbers in the Old Testament where it probably tells you how many there were, just in case there's any confusion there. Right. Okay. Well, let's move on now to what have what I've seen called the the, the heaven texts, or at least some of them. Um, and so there, there was a blog post, another one that you that you wrote, in which you quote a Watchtower publication, which says, based on John fourteen two to three, that the Bible's first reference to heavenly life after death was also by Jesus. He told his apostles that he would prepare a place for them in heaven. Now, how do you respond to this claim? Did Jesus ascend to heaven to prepare a place for the anointed class in heaven? Well, no, he didn't, and, and, and that's, that, that may be what a Jehovah's Witness may say, but what we always have to do is um, really analyze their words carefully because they'll use certain language that may sound biblical, but you just got to examine it very closely, and uh, this, is, this is one of those places. John 14, 2 says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now, I will admit that on the face of it, um, it may seem difficult to reconcile this with uh, life on uh, the new earth, because Jesus uh, seems to be saying that um, he's preparing a place in heaven, and that's where we're going to go to spend eternity, but we just have to look at the, these verses very carefully uh, to see that that's not actually what Jesus is talking about, uh, as well as doing some cross-referencing. In verse 3, first of all, it says that Jesus will come again yeah. and receive you to myself. So you have to ask, well, is Jesus coming, and where is he coming to? Now, a Jehovah's Witness will say that Jesus is coming, but it's an invisible coming. Um, so what you'd have to do before you get into that is go to other texts like um, Acts chapter 3, verse 21, to show that Jesus is indeed leaving heaven um, and coming to earth. But right. but nonetheless, it shows that he's coming again and he's receiving you uh, to himself. And so um, once you've established that he's coming to earth, well, now you can say, okay, he's coming to earth. Once we've established that, let's move on. Um, now it says that in my father's house there are many dwelling places and he's going to prepare a place for you. Now the only other places that I'm aware of um, in the New Testament, where Jesus taught, or, or the authors um, talk about preparing a place, is actually speaking about preparing people. And one of those uh, could be Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, where it talks about we are the house. Um, and you can also go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 where it talks about the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God mm. in the Spirit. So you have this language of people being built. And so maybe just to summarize, you can say that 
Um, Jesus is essentially preparing the kingdom of God. He's preparing us. He's growing us and and furthering and spreading the kingdom so that one day the kingdom can be uh, fully established on earth. And so to tie this together with Revelation chapter 14, I would interpret this as saying that Jesus is going to come again and he's going to establish the kingdom that he has been preparing, uh, which is essentially us and us uh, living and flourishing um, on the kingdom of God on the new earth. Well, and do you think that we could point uh, to Revelation 21 on this particular issue as well, since it says that the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which you just established, is the people of God? Uh, he saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. Um, I mean, could we point to that as well as part of this argument? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that's that's an excellent point, and um, I bring that up to Jehovah's Witnesses all the time, and they want to completely reinterpret that to mean uh, something completely different and use a very inconsistent standard. So I would certainly point to that. I would also go to where it talks about us meeting the Lord in the air, not heaven, uh, but the air. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of other texts you can go to to establish that. I think those are great ideas. If you're getting into Revelation chapter 14, um which Job's witness will point to in establishing uh, the ruling and reigning of the anointed class in heaven. It will be really useful to be able to go to those cross references and ask them those questions. You know, what, what, what's the, what's uh, Paul referring to in Ephesians chapter two, where he's talking about the building, you know, us being built together. And, uh, what does he mean in, uh, Revelation chapter uh, 21 verse two, where it talks about New Jerusalem coming out of heaven from God? What do those mean? And can we reconcile that with John chapter, uh, 14? And I definitely think we can. Yeah. Well, now, another thing that Jehovah's Witnesses are going to do is they're going to point out that the kingdom of God is often called the kingdom of heaven. Um, there was a uh, article it's called something like Born Again, What Does It Mean? at the watchtower.org, and it puts the argument this way. The kingdom of God is also called the kingdom of the heavens, which shows that Jesus and his fellow kings rule from heaven. So how about it? Does the fact that the kingdom of God is also called the kingdom of heaven mean that the fate of some is heaven rather than on earth? Uh, no, it doesn't. And uh, even the Watchtower's own um, proof text uh, will demonstrate that. Now, uh, what they'll do is they'll go to text to establish that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the rest of the Old Testament saints are certainly going to be living on the paradise earth, not in heaven. Mm. And so what I would recommend doing uh, if you're interacting with the Jehovah's Witness is clearly establish that. Ask them, uh, where will Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be in the resurrection? And they will certainly say they'll be on uh, the restored earth. And then you can ask them, Will Abraham and Isaac and Jacob be in the kingdom of heaven? Well, as we've uh, talked about before, Chris, in this interview, uh, they believe the kingdom of heaven is referring to God's government in heaven. And so you can ask them, so will Abraham and Isaac and Jacob be in God's kingdom in heaven? And they will certainly say no. What you'll do then is you'll ask them to turn to Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, where it says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what you can do at that point is you can cross-reference Luke 13, 28, where it says that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of the prophets are in the kingdom of God. And so the authors in, in the New Testament, they use the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven uh, interchangeably to show that it's the kingdom belonging to God. It's in the genitive, the kingdom belonging uh, to heaven. But both of those verses, Matthew 8, 11 and Luke 13, 28, are very, very powerful 
uh, refutations of the Watchtower uh, two-class system because, according to them, only the anointed class can be in the kingdom of heaven. But in these two verses, it's saying that all the prophets are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, that that's these are another uh, set of verses that completely refutes that mindset. Yeah, that's really good. Now, there are a bunch of others of these so-called heaven texts that we could talk about, but because we're limited in time, I've got one more that I want to bring up to you. You actually mentioned it a moment ago, First Thessalonians 4.17, that says that at least some Christians will meet the Lord in the air and in the clouds and be with him forever. Now, you pointed out that it says air, not heaven, but nevertheless, Jehovah's Witnesses are going to say that air and clouds is clearly indicative of the sky or the heavens, and so it's a symbolic or idiomatic way to refer to heaven. So so how, how would we argue that, no, this passage does doesn't talk about some Christians uh, being in heaven. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they can argue it and make it, uh, you know, turn it metaphorically or anything like that, but I would still just go to Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, where it says that even if it does mean that, that Christians uh, go to heaven and if meeting the Lord in the air, which I don't know why I just didn't use the word heaven there, but um, <laughs> if that's the case, but, no, but no, nonetheless... Um, even if that does mean that they go to heaven, this still says they come down out of heaven from God. Right. And so I would I would definitely use those two in connection. And um, I, I'm personally not sure exactly how to uh, reconcile that as far as uh, does air mean heaven or does heaven mean uh, the celestial sky? Uh, exactly. If you if you look in the Book of Revelation, you see different things falling out from heaven. Um, you know, so that could be referring to the sky, not necessarily heaven itself. So um, I haven't exactly figured out a way to reconcile those two, if you have any ideas. But nonetheless, I would just ask the Jehovah's Witness themselves to reconcile that. Ask them to uh, think for themselves, because that's what we're trying to do here. We can say that we're thinking for ourselves. We have uh, certain things that we need to resolve. Ask the Jehovah's Witness to resolve it, because uh, it says coming down out of heaven from God. Well, Mr. Jehovah's Witness, how do you reconcile that with your view that the anointing class, uh, they stay in heaven. Yeah, that's good. Another argument made by Jehovah's Witnesses in support of the anointed class's fate in heaven is that their role in eternity is to rule as part of God's kingdom or government, which, as we've talked about at length, they insist is in heaven. You go on in that blog post I mentioned earlier to quote the Watchtower as saying this, Resurrection to heaven is closely related to an assignment given only to some humans. On their last evening together, Jesus told his apostles that they would sit on thrones to judge in his heavenly kingdom. Thus, ruling with Jesus in heaven was to be their assignment. So what do you make of this and other passages that Jehovah's Witnesses might point to? Does the fact that some Christians will sit on thrones, uh, at least in this case, the apostles, does that mean that their assignment is to rule in heaven over the rest of believers on earth? No, I don't. I don't think so, Chris. And um, as long as you've established uh, first of all that Jesus Christ is going to return uh, physically to this earth, then um, I, I think that basically puts all these other ar- arguments to rest. Because it's really there's nothing else to argue. If Jesus is coming to earth to establish his kingdom, if he's going to rule and reign on earth uh, with with all Christians for all eternity, then that answers the questions as to where the thrones are. And even if it's the case that 
that some Christians will uh, be on these thrones. Um, it's still it's still on earth, and uh, so I, so I think that as long as you've established that, see, we all come to this with a certain assumption per se, because the Jehovah's Witnesses will come to those texts about thrones with the assumption that they're in heaven. Well, we might come with that assumption that that's on earth, and so I think you'd have to first establish where the eternal hope is, and once you've established that, uh, then you can establish where the thrones are. Now, a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses will harp on the fact that um, the, the, the anointed class will be uh, ruling and reigning in heaven uh, with Christ. Now, they, they specify this, the ruling and reigning. Now, if there's rulers, there have, has to be subjects, and they'll make a distinction there. Now, what I do when they bring up this issue, and it happens all the time, is I go to uh, Romans chapter 4, verse th 13, uh, which I mentioned earlier, where it says that Abraham and his seed will be heirs of the world. So I'll ask them, if uh, having rulers requires subjects, then who are the subjects of Abraham? Because Abraham mm -hmm. is going to be an heir of the world. And so I just turn the tables on them and ask them to tell me who the rulers and subjects are. Because um, if Abraham's a ruler, then all the Old Testament saints must be rulers and heirs. That means that all Christians are rulers and heirs. So who are the subjects of all, um, all Christians and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets? And so... Um, I, I think that whole argument of rulers and subjects really causes them to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, while we as Christians might wonder why it is that maybe some Christians have uh, thrones, whereas others don't, or, you know, uh, Christians have long talked about um, degrees of reward in heaven, stuff like that. Whatever the case, while we might have some, you know, while we might be curious about that and have some questions, there's nothing that necessitates that um, that one class is ruling over another, uh, or that or that the one that rules is somewhere else than the subjects that are being ruled over, so to speak. Right. Right. I agree with that, Chris. Definitely. Well, let's talk about one more. Um, you know, one of the things that I've uh, heard the anointed class, I don't know if we've talked about it yet, but one of the things that they've been called is a little flock. And Jehovah's Witnesses might go on, might go to point, uh, might go to Luke 12, 32, in which Jesus says the Father has chosen to give the kingdom to a little flock. Whereas he said elsewhere in John 10, 16, that he had other sheep, not of this fold. So didn't Jesus thus distinguish between two classes of a sheep? Well, no, he didn't. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 12, all we have to do is uh, read the context uh, to see uh, that this is not what Jesus is doing here. Um, now, in, in Luke 12, 32, Jesus says, The Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Now, uh, I brought up Matthew chapter 25. And Matthew chapter 25 is a text you can almost always go back to and tie tie these things in because it says that um, uh, the sheep will inherit the kingdom. So you can ask them, um, since Luke 12.32 is saying to the little flock, I'm going to give you the kingdom, which the watchtower interprets that as the anointed class, well, you can ask them, well, if the, the great crowd are going to inherit the kingdom, 
then why don't they get the kingdom that Jesus is talking about in Luke twelve thirty two? It's just a it's just an argument that really doesn't make any sense. But they're they're going on that phrase little flock. They seem to make a lot of that because the hundred forty four thousand is a smaller group than the great crowd. Hence little flock. Right. Now the reason Jesus calls them a little flock is not because uh, they're a smaller group within two classes. It's because the disciples are a little flock in comparison to the crowd that Jesus is speaking to. If you go back to verse 13, it says that someone in the crowd said to Jesus, and he asked Jesus a question, and basically the whole discourse is about Jesus speaking to a crowd, and then in verse 22, he starts speaking to his disciples. So he's just talking to the disciples and calling them a little flock in comparison to the crowd that he was previously speaking to. And he's saying to them, I'm going to give you the kingdom. And he's talking to the disciples because there's many unbelievers in that crowd. So I, I just think that contextually, uh, this just doesn't support or even uh, mention in the least anything uh, about two classes. Yeah, that's now, really when good. We go to, when we go to John uh, chapter uh, 10 verse 16 where Jesus is talking about other sheep. Well, this is just another instance where we just need to uh, read the context and do a little bit of cross-referencing uh, because Jesus primarily came for the Jews. That's obvious. Um, and so he didn't necessarily come for uh, the Gentiles in that sense. Now, when we go to texts like uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 through 44, um, Paul talks about making two groups into one, and he's breaking down of the barrier of the dividing wall that that previously uh, separated uh, the Jews from the Gentiles. And so, right. if you just uh, if you're in a situation where the Jehovah's Witness brings up John chapter ten verse sixteen, where he's talking about the other sheep, just ask them: Is it possible that Jesus is referring to Gentiles here? Um, now, it's kind of similar to the Mormons. Um, I just had a friend mention this to me the other day, that the Mormons think that the other sheep <laughs> are uh, Indians in America, right. uh, which is kind of interesting that the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness both take that verse completely out of context um, to make it fit their doctrine. But if you just get a Jehovah's Witness to think about this a little bit, just ask them, could this be referring to Gentiles? And ask them just to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Just get them to read it. You don't even need to really even ask them a question. Just ask them if Ephesians chapter 2 uh, could be referring to the other sheep that, Je that um, Jesus was speaking about in John chapter 10, verse 16. And uh, the Watchtower doesn't have an answer uh, for this one, but the Jehovah's Witness might just say that, let me think about this and let me get back to you. But I've asked many, and I still haven't gotten back with an answer. So, Yeah. Well, what I might also point to, I, I just now, as you were speaking, did this uh, cross-referencing at Bible Gateway. And one of the passages that's uh, cross-referenced by that um, other other sheep verse is John 11.52. Uh, and there, Jesus says, um, or not, not Jesus, it says... Um, uh, now he did this, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, that is Israel, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into the, into the, uh, into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So I mean, there's another example of where, um, Jesus' mission is to take two peoples and bring them into one under himself. Um, so yeah, I think there's several passages, uh, that we could go to. Um, 
That's an excellent. Which one was that? That was John eleven fifty two. Actually, John eleven fifty one and fifty two. Wow, that's that's a that's a really good one. I'm, I'm writing that down right now. That's that's, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a per, that's a perfect one to use. Definitely. I'm glad that you were able to learn something from me. That's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, now there are obviously a lot of other proof texts that Jehovah's Witnesses would point to um, if we were to have an extended discussion on this topic. But you know, as you know, this interview would go on for hours longer. But before it is, before we wrap up, are there any other passages that you think that we should be prepared to respond to on this issue? Um, yeah, there, there's, there's many other passages, but what I would say, Chris, is that, um, as long as you have, um, a really good foundation with some of the passages that we spoke about, um, in this interview, I think you, you pretty much uh, have everything you need. We, we touched all on all the main, the main verses, but I would always just, if they come up with something that you've never, that you've never heard before, um, I would definitely just bring them back to Matthew chapter 25, bring them to Romans chapter uh, 4 verse 13, Ephesians chapter 2. I would just always bring them back um, uh, to those verses. And, uh, you know, if you do get to the verses where it talks about um, seeing the kingdom of God in order to be born again, um, you know, take them to uh, Matthew eight eleven, where it talks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob being in the kingdom of God and ask them, well, if you're in the kingdom, doesn't that mean you'll see the kingdom? And you'd have to admit yes. And so um, if that's the case, then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets are uh, born again because they're not only going to be in the kingdom of God, they're going to see uh, the kingdom of God. So uh, my recommendation would just be to build a really good foundation on the, the text that we spoke about in the interview. And uh, you, you would definitely be able to make a very solid case uh, regardless of uh, what they bring up. Well, as we begin to wrap up, um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak freely, apart from the constraints of, of me giving you questions, uh, to speak freely to those listening, those who are maybe very convinced, uh, devout Jehovah's Witnesses, or maybe those who are questioning certain teachings of the Watchtower, or maybe the friends and family of Jehovah's Witnesses, or, or anybody else. You, you've got the floor. How would you like to close? Well, uh, what I would definitely say, Chris, is that... Um you know, all Christians need to learn uh, what they believe and uh, why they believe it. And that's regardless of whether or not you focus your studies on the cult, whether it's uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or um, or any other group. Because um, as long as you can uh, defend uh, your beliefs and knowing what you believe, just in general on all issues, whether it's the existence of God or uh, the doctrines relating to salvation, I think you'll be uh, very well equipped to deal with anyone, um, especially uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, um, if anyone does have an opportunity to, um, you know, interact uh, with one of Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, I would definitely, um, you know, suggest that you just uh, spend a lot of time with them, uh, just going through the scriptures and asking them questions. That's a really um, important thing to keep in mind. You don't just want to uh, spout out um, you know the truth, and just um, and let them let them run with it. You really need to ask them questions and engage them, and allow them uh, to think about these things. Because, um, like I mentioned earlier, they have to have absolute, unquestionable submission to whatever their their um, leaders tell them. So you want to counteract uh, that process. You don't want to keep telling them um, what to think, but how to think. And so, get them to turn to these passages that we that we talked about. Ask them questions. Ask them, uh, what does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? What does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? What did Jesus mean there um, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11? So uh, I think the key thing is just to ask them 
really uh, good and engaging uh, questions. And as Greg Kogel says, put a stone in their shoe. I, I like that phrase. Well, last time you were on, you, you recommended for us some books and other resources if we want to learn more about the Jehovah's Witnesses and how to reach out to them. Are there any you want to repeat or add to the list? Any resources for Christians who want to research this specific topic at greater depth? Well, unfortunately, Chris, um, I honestly can't recommend any books um, that deal uh, with this topic in a, in, on, on a level that I can really wholeheartedly agree with and recommend uh, because uh, not only are there many um, uninformed Christian laypersons out there, there's a lot of uninformed uh, Christian apologists out there, unfortunately, and uh, most of the books uh, written um, about Jehovah's Witnesses argue against uh, their belief um, in the paradise earth. Whereas uh, you and I both agree, and many other Christians agree, that um, Paradise Earth or the New Earth is actually a biblical teaching. Um, so I can't really recommend um, any of those books in particular. Now, the one book that I uh, that I could recommend would be um, actually a book by a Jehovah's Witness apologist by the name of Greg Stafford. Now, I don't agree with um, a lot of what he says in that book, but actually on this issue of the two classes, um, he offers some very engaging thoughts. Um, now, I don't agree with Stafford's conclusion because he's still uh, a little bit partial to the witnesses on the two-class theology, but uh, he also challenges them, um, and he challenges some of the Christian apologists that uh, that I uh, that I just mentioned. You know, guys like Ron Rhodes or uh, Robert Bowman um, in their books on Jehovah's Witnesses when they seem to argue against. Um, their paradise or so I would recommend uh, Greg Stafford's work uh, in his chapter where he deals with, with the two class system his books called Jehovah's Witnesses uh, defended and um, I guess as far as what else I could recommend would be just to um, uh, go to my website uh, theapologeticfront.com uh, and I've done some I've done some writing on on this issue, but I'm hoping to write a lot more on this just because I don't think enough has been written. Uh, not a lot of focus has been put in on this, and I don't think a lot that's been written on this is actually correct. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Well, now, you, you just gave the, the uh, address to your website. How can, how can my listeners contact you if they want to um, reach out to you for help? Well, they definitely can um, email me. Uh, my email address is uh, Mike, M-I-K-E, at uh, theapologeticfront.com. Um, that's that's one really good way to get in contact with me. If anyone um, has any questions at all, they need some help, uh, whatever it may be, um, they can also call me. I have a, um, a separate line that I reserve uh, specifically for um, those who are uh, wanting to talk about this further. Uh, my phone number for that is 678-208-9153. Uh, it's actually a voicemail service I use through Google Voice where if someone wants to um, contact me, they can leave me a message and I'll call them back. But, yeah, they can contact me through those uh, means, and they can also just go to my website. Great. Well, thanks so, for, uh, so much for joining me today, Mike. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciated the opportunity. So there you go. That was Mike Felker from www.theapologeticfront.com helping us to tackle the Jehovah's Witnesses' two-class theology. You know, I think I agree with Mike that this is one of the most important issues, if not the most important issue, that we should prepare ourselves to discuss. Uh, one point I'll add that Mike might not have made is that 
by preparing ourselves on this topic and talking about it right at the door, we might be able to catch the Jehovah's Witness at our door off guard by coming out of the starting gates, agreeing with them about the resurrection and eternity on the new earth, since they're under the impression that they're the only ones who believe that. Uh, and from there, I think that Mike's advice will really help us make an impact and plant some proverbial seeds. Uh, next up on the The Apologetics podcast, in fact, only just a couple of days away, is an interview with Dr. Edward Fudge on the Restoration Movement and the Churches of Christ. And two groups within the Churches of Christ, one that he represents and that uh, one that I critiqued in previous episodes, which are no longer part of the feed. And then in a couple of weeks, Edward Fudge will join me again to talk about annihilationism as an alternative to the traditional view of hell. So stay tuned. Stay tuned.